Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast where we chronicle all things 90s camera. This episode is the conclusion of a chat I had with Grant Lawrence of Vancouver, British Columbia's The Smugglers. But before we get to that conclusion, contest alert. Grant has generously donated a signed copy of Dirty Windshields, which goes into great detail about Assignment of the Smugglers and is a fantastic read. And along with the book, I am adding a Raven Jewel t-shirt to the prize. For contest details, please follow us on Twitter, at RaveJewel, and Instagram, at RaveJewel. So, without further ado, here is the second half of my chat with Grant Lawrence. You mentioned earlier that the Gruesomes, you haven't heard a lot of mentions of the Gruesomes on the podcast. and That's right. And and I I also mentioned that that was an outrage, right? And another outrage is not a lot of mention of Cubs so far on the podcast. Yeah, in fact, I mean, I I I think I might have to take over booking your podcast because <laughs> okay, because here's who has got to be on your show. You got to get Lisa Mar from Cub on the show. You got to get uh, Chris Murphy from Sloan on the show. We hated each other when we first met because we were pretty much a lot alike. <laughs> and as Chris likes to joke all the time, uh, you know, our our bands are really similar. And as Chris says, you know, on the back of Dirty Windshields, my book about the smugglers, he says something like, yeah, a lot of these themes are really relatable, except, you know, my band was on the East Coast and we were actually quite good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I him and I, again, we're we're pretty, pretty good friends and we've known each other for years and years and years now. We met in the early 90s and we've been friends ever since. I mean, it was rough the first couple of years. I was like, oh, here's here's that asshole from Sloan. No, and then and then he'd say, oh, here's that asshole from that band. <laughs> I can't even remember their name. And uh, But we, we ended up becoming really great friends. And so you got to have him on the show and Lisa on the show. So you mentioned touring with Cub. You also detail in your book, Dirty Windshields, a whole chapter dedicated to Cub. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about... Um relationship between cub yourself and mint records and uh, a young nico case as well yeah for sure yeah so uh in the early 90s i started working at mint records you know a lot of my relationships in life like those guys at mint records they hated me they hated the smugglers they thought we were (laughs) so obnoxious and terrible and uh we entered a battle of the bands called shindig in vancouver and we didn't know it because the judging cards were anonymous but one of the nastiest judging cards was like you are terrible you're the worst band of all time <laughs> and the lead singer has got to be the most obnoxious guy, kid in all of vancouver you should break up right now <laughs> and i found out years later that comment card was written by bill baker who the owner of mint records right, uh, who is one of my uh, dear friends to this day so you never know right <laughs> and uh so I ended up working at Mint, and they couldn't believe it. I think to this day, they still can't believe that I worked there. <laughs> and, you know, that's when the smugglers made the shift from Pop Lama to Mint. It just made sense. I worked there. Uh, it just, you know, it was a, a real working label. It was a very successful independent Canadian label. Uh, and the surprise, you know, the, the Mint had signed a couple of bands early on, uh, Windwalker, a kind of a scary goth punk band. They would do things like 
cut off pigs' heads at their shows and throw the throw the blood on the crowd. And and then Tank Hog, which was kind of a proto grunge band, featuring a couple of the guys from Slow, who I mentioned earlier. And and then on kind of a whim, Randy Awada, the other owner of Mint, his sister Robin, and Bill Baker's girlfriend Lisa formed a band called Cub with a drummer named Valeria. And it was just kind of, I wouldn't say it was a a joke, but it was like, oh, you know, the the ladies of mint or whatever. And they it was this was like the height of grunge. So it was male male dominated, very heavy, like oh, I'm so <laughs> sad. You know, you had Hayden singing in this type of way. You had Eddie Vedder singing in this type of way. Everyone was singing this sort of guttural tones backed by dark, distorted guitars and plodding rhythms and minor chords. And then you had Cub, which was the exact opposite. playing simple songs laced with what were incredibly infectious melodies. Uh, Lisa Marr being a really, really deceptively excellent songwriter. And they put out a single and they toured with the Smugglers. And it was one of our national tours uh, for North America. And we're like, you know, we, we had a meeting at a restaurant in Vancouver before the tour. And Lisa said, would you take us out on tour? And I said, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, we could help you out. You know, this would be about our third or fourth tour. And they had a couple of singles. Uh, They had Pep and Hot Dog Day, and then they had released their album, Betty Cola at 93. And that Betty Cola record just took off. (laughs) And campus radio loved them. College radio loved them in campus in the Canada college radio in the States. And they just like went to number one in Canada on campus radio. And I remember I, I was there at mint and I did it personally 
we had a, a record store row here in Vancouver and it was about five or six record stores all on the same block oh. on uh, Seymour street. And it was amazing. It was track records and Odyssey imports and Sam, the record man and AMB sound and collectors RPM. And I would be mint was about three or four blocks away. And I would be physically carrying boxes of CDs wow. to these stores and they would put them on the shelf and they would disappear. And it was unbelievable, the sales. There was a, a commercial radio station in Vancouver at the time called Coast 1040 that was playing indie-style music. And they they put Cubs' first single, Go Fish, into rotation. Ooh la la, ooh cha cha, ooh la la, cha cha cha. Just flying off the shelf. It was incredible. And so we took them on tour. And it became apparent very quickly. We thought we were the salty veterans. <laughs> it became very apparent very quickly that the audiences loved Cub. And, you know, our merchandise, we weren't really hip to the whole, you know, merch table thing yet. So we had, you know, our CD in the Hall of Fame and we had like one style of extra large only smuggler shirt. <laughs> which was with a size then, you know, like I'm a right, little right, guy, right. you know, I'm a little guy and I would buy extra large and, and in retrospect, they look completely ridiculous on me. They didn't fit at all. And so cub had like sizes for both men and women. Oh, Oh, really? <laughs> and they had, uh, records and Lisa had a book and they had like wow, coasters yeah. and coffee mugs and and they would kill kill <laughs> kill on merchandise every night and it was it was really dragging us down and you know uh, at the end of the night Robin bless her soul she's so nice and cub but also very meek uh, and shy at the time she would often sell merchandise for us. And we were so ungrateful because we'd get back and we'd see a huge stack of cash in the little cash box. And we'd be all right. So how do we do on merchandise? <laughs> and they would peel out like a $10 bill and give it to us, period. Like that's it, like one, one CD or something like that. And then the rest of the cash was theirs. And we became in our ridiculous sort of uh, remember ambition, good times, denial in our sort of jealous denial. We were certain that cub was either ripping us off in the merch booth, even though the merch count seemed fine every night, or they were, they were bees. theory was, well, they must be pushing their merchandise <laughs> on the audience. And, and that's why we're not selling enough. So there was a horrible infamous night in Windsor, Ontario, we played a, a lesbian bar called the Spotted Dog in Windsor. And it, uh, so there's generally, there was a, a lot of uh, women at the show. And they're, they're, you know, I mean, that's the other thing is uh, Cub just brought in a ton of women, which was also really great to see in the age of grunge, which was quite male dominated. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were on stage and we were playing at the Spotted Dog and Bees was keeping an eye on the merch <laughs> table from the stage, our basis. And I remember I said we didn't interrupt songs earlier. Well, 
he saw an interaction go down at the merchandise table with Robin. And a person, uh, a woman, pointed at the smuggler's shirt. And we saw Robin shake her head. No, <laughs> she mouthed. And then pointed to the cub shirt. And the woman nodded. Yes, her mouth went. <laughs> and Robin got out the cub shirt and, and the money was exchanged. And bees stop the song in the middle. Hold <laughs> it, hold it, hold it. All right. We got you red-handed. <laughs> she wanted a smuggler's shirt. This is all from the stage. Amazing. And you just pushed a cub shirt onto her. <laughs> hey, lady, you get back on the table right now. <laughs> and you give me the, you're going to get a smuggler's shirt. And the woman said, I wanted medium. <laughs> and bees looked at me and I shook my head only extra large man <laughs> and bees looked back and then said oh and then our drummer one two three four and then right back in the, <laughs> and we sort of hoped that would be the end of it and it wasn't the end of it <laughs> and you know robin was crying and really upset and by that point uh cubs drummer was nico case who went on to be a grammy nominated star in the new pornographers and her own solo career. And she was, you did not mess with this woman. She grew up <laughs> on the other side of the tracks in Tacoma, Washington. And she was as tough as nails. Uh, she was a boxer wow. and she was dating Dave uh, in the smugglers, but that didn't matter. She <laughs> wanted, because we made Robin cry, she wanted to kick all of our asses <laughs> And we stayed with a super fan in Windsor that night who was really looking forward to hanging out with the smugglers and Cub and talking about rock and roll and, and trading stories. And instead, he had two bands fighting like crazy at each other's throats, uh, almost physically. Nico was in there, fists clenched right in Bees' <laughs> face. And with Bill Baker from Mint, who was tour managing, in the middle, trying <laughs> to hold each party at bay. And we eventually made up. And of course, you know, these are, again, uh, all of my best friends to this day. <laughs> uh, just, I don't get to see Nico very much. We're still in touch occasionally. You know, we trade tweets or whatever. Robin Iwata from Cub lives in Egypt now on an, wow. in an oasis in the middle of the desert. Wow. Yeah, Lisa Marr is currently in Vancouver due to she was she got uh, she was on this side of the border when COVID went down, and uh, but she lives in LA, so yeah, it was uh, it, it was a pretty wild tour, but we we love them dearly. But we had to eat a lot of crow on that tour, that's for sure, <laughs> a lot of crow. I mean, it's just one of those situations where the opening band eclipses the headlining band, and and that's what happened on that tour for sure. And Cub pretty much after that was a, a headliner or an opener for a much bigger tour. Like they, they would open for, they might be giants theaters in the States. So they'd open for the muffs. Uh, and that's where Lisa met her first husband, Ronnie from the muffs. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it, uh, they, they, their, their career was very, 
mercurial uh, because they existed exactly five years. They existed hmm. from May 15th, 1992 to May 15th, 1997. Amazing. Whereas the smugglers existed from 1998 onwards, you know, for years and years and years and years we did it. And we didn't want to stop because it was just so fun. And we were a party band. And once we landed on Lookout Records, we became popular in the States, Japan, Europe. And we just wanted it to keep going and going and going and going and going. And, you know, we we survived the crash, the music industry crash of 98. And we just barreled right through that. And, uh, and we had a great time doing it. Um, were you ever close to making the jump to like uh, at least a major label in Canada? Maybe. Yeah, uh, the quick answer is no. Uh, and you know, I mean, we were really defiantly independent. Hmm. But I remember there was a guy named Jeff Kulowick who uh, was working at Virgin Records, and he had come from the independent scene and made the leap to the major labels. And this was during the heyday. You know, like I make this really, really super lame parallel that essentially the 90s were like our 60s. It's like that horrible Dennis Hopper movie the uh, called Flashback where the tagline of the movie was like, the 90s are going to make the 60s look like the 50s. <laughs> you know, but in reality, the 90s really were an incredible breakthrough decade for music. And it was like our 60s, you know, and, and Nirvana were like our Beatles in a way. And, you know, Mudhoney was like the dirty Rolling Stones or whatever. You could make those parallels. And there was a huge, huge boom. And major labels had tons and tons of money. And everybody was trying to find the next Nirvana and the next Green Day and the next Pearl Jam or whatever the case may be. And so they came calling to Mint and just Jeff Kulowick struck a relationship with the guys at Mint and they scored Pluto from Mint. So Pluto went on to Virgin. But I would argue that, you know, again, I was defiantly independent and I could see writing on the wall and I, I saw so many bands that made the leap from independent to major. And the cash was great up front. And if you were smart, like 5440, you know, you bought houses. If you were dumb, you, you bought cars <laughs> and, you know, or whatever, new guitars or something. But, you know, if you, if you were smart, you invested that money because you knew it wasn't going to last. And so many of these bands that made the leap from independent to majors realized that life was way better on the independent because there was a community there was stability. We've all heard the major label story. The guy who signed you just got moved or just got fired. And then that that band becomes a low priority and, and a bit of a disaster. And that rarely happened in the independent scheme. You usually had the you worked with the same people for years and years. And so Pluto moved to Virgin. Cub got courted. They did not. The smugglers were asked maybe for about five minutes. We had no interest in making the leap. The Hanson brothers shockingly did. Uh, uh, they went to Virgin for maybe one or two records and then back to Mint. 
that was a shock to me because you know the Hanson brothers are no means no and no means yeah. no or but as uh, defiantly DIY but you know they wanted some cash you know they had been working hard and if a label is going to throw around a bunch of cash but with the smugglers it, it was never really the case and we love being on mint and in the United States, I thought that, you know, our next label after Pop Lama was Lookout Records. And I thought that was the best record label in the world. Hmm. And we were on it. And I thought that you just can't get any better than that. And so I didn't want to be anywhere else. I was 100% honored and satisfied to be uh, on those record labels at that at that time in the 90s and 2000s. Now, um you spent a lot of time in the nineties in outside of Canada, you know, touring various countries, um, and with inside Canada, I mean, as you've kind of alluded to the alternative scene with Canadian artists was really booming with, you know, things like edge fest and much music and chart magazine, all helping build these bands up to big status. Right. Did you, um, ever have a sense of any of that, of any Canadian fans outside of the country? Like, would you go down to the state and see t-shirts or anybody ask you about this band from Canada or that band? Or Yeah. And, but it was limited and mm. I did pay really close attention to who they would ask about. Mm. And it was really limited. And I didn't want to be one of those bands that was Canada only. I wanted to have a really strong international footprint. And, you know, there were times where in the early days we would play the States and because we really, really, really wanted to make inroads there. And we would, we, you know, and we'd get used to these kind of, you know, bad shows or whatever, like in the early nineties playing in places like, you know, New Brunswick, New Jersey, there is such a place <laughs> and, uh, or Chattanooga, Tennessee or whatever. And some of the shows were good. A lot of them were bad. Richmond, Virginia. I remember in Richmond, Virginia, we played the secret pre-gig for Murphy's Law. Well, when you're a band that no one's ever heard of, the last thing you want to do is have a gig that is a secret. They're already <laughs> a secret. Nobody cares about them to begin with. But then to actually be a secret show, I mean, that was the most i mean you do a secret show for big big bands and even then you leak it you got to tell people <laughs> so that was a total just uh, i couldn't believe it it was so embarrassing but the one good um bit about that is that the guy who put on the secret show was in guar oh, no. and we got to stay at his house and try on all the guar masks that that night so that That's was really amazing. that was really fun he was a really cool guy but i'm like why are you putting on a secret show for us? He didn't want to compete with his own show, which was Murphy's Law, and it was already set. But it was it was a horrible experience, besides <laughs> the Guar Mass. But then we would go. We would always do Canada and the U.S. on the same tour. So we would dip down in the states, do about thirty or forty dates in the states. Then we would dip up into Canada. In those early '90s years, it was always so great to come back to Canada and play El Macombo or play in Kingston or play in Ottawa because our records were being played a lot on campus radio and we had the much music support. And so all of a sudden the fans would be there and, or mm. London, Ontario at call the office. And it was amazing. And it was like, Oh, thank goodness for Canada. You know, <laughs> we're working so hard down in the States and it wasn't until uh, we signed a lookout in 95 that people really started showing up in the States. 
and and into in bigger much bigger numbers uh like like canada numbers i mean our satisfaction was always like you give the smugglers a club of 300 people sold out we're happy as clams you know that's <laughs> that's perfect rock and roll compression for us if you light off a stick of dynamite inside of a room with a low ceiling that holds 300 people you're going to hear it and you're probably going to be blown away and it was the same theory with our band. We needed those smoky, low ceiling, kind of cavern-like clubs. And we were very satisfied with that. That was perfect for us. We would go into a club, and if it was a low ceiling with a nice low stage, we'd say, ooh, good rock and roll compression in here. But if we would arrive at the gig and it was a huge cavernous theater, we'd go, this is going to be a tough one, reaching mm. the people at the back, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so we didn't really get into that theater scene until we started touring with the Donnas and bigger bands years later. But, uh, but yeah, so in Canada, there was all these huge bands that were Canada famous. And I didn't want that. And so in the States, we'd see like Real Statics record, Whale Music, that is considered one of the greatest Canadian records of all time. And that record came out on a major label that came out on sire records in the states i believe and it was just in the delete bin you know in the record stores we'd visit and our record would be in the in the indie bin and there'd be like 40 and what the delete bin was if anybody doesn't know the delete bin was if a record died on the vine if a record came out didn't sell the label often would flood the record stores with displays and tons of copies and the delete bin was the, basically the free box at the front there where you could pick up a, a CD for a buck or, you know, 50 cents or whatever. And that's where we got the Reaesthetics whale music for, you know, a dollar in new at the record store in New Haven, Connecticut on tour. And we just couldn't believe it. And I was so insulted but no, we would not, we wouldn't hear about Sloan. We wouldn't hear about the hip. What we would hear about is punk. So we would see Propagandi shirts, the, the Winnipeg punk rock band. We would see their shirts everywhere. We would see No Means No shirts everywhere. We would see Chicks Diggit shirts. So we realized that it was the punk rock bands they were the ones that were getting outside of our borders and they were all in the DIY scene and they all had American labels as well. So SNFU, I think they were on alternative tentacles, I think. And uh, no means no, definitely were uh, chicks dig it. We're on sub pop for a little while. We were on lookout. Uh, Propagandi was on fat records and that really helped those bands. Whereas a lot of the Canadian bands didn't really have much of an American foothold. You know, the real aesthetics tried, hip tried. And I just really feared that. And I realized that often it was major labels. You know, a major label in Canada would release the record, but then they would have to convince their major label counterparts in different territories to pick up the record. And if they didn't, well, then you just wouldn't get released in the States. And I just wanted to avoid that at any cost and and did and you know not that there was any major label interest anyway but i just wanted to keep it more on a 
community grassroots level because I felt like that was more serving to our band in the long run. But, um, you know, other than that, uh, we weren't asked about a lot of other Canadian bands, just those, those Mm -hmm. punk ones. And I would judge it by the amount of t-shirts I would see. So, you know, I'd see propaganda shirts in Scotland and in Germany and in Australia. Privately profitable, the anthem of the aperture, puppeteer, untouchable, focus a moment, not in approval, bury our heads in the barcodes of these neo-colonials. A former nemesis, the woman of the nation state, a person race up for a new man, have a concentrate, try again, but now we'll confuse what is class war, is this class war, yes, this is class war. I saw more propaganda shirts than any other Canadian band uh, ever in our whole touring career. Now, you mentioned uh, Lookout Records joining their roster and that being one of your favorite labels, if not your favorite label. Was it everything you thought it would be to be on the label and to work with Larry Livermore? Yeah, Larry Livermore was awesome. He's one of those characters, right? Like, he's in the Nardwar realm of kind (laughs) of like spectrum genius type guy who just had this... He was an older guy, you know, I refer to him as a kind of a, uh, in a Dickensian uh, reference, he was kind of a Fagin-like character in that he was older, he, he came up, you know, like he listened to original first wave rock and roll when he was a kid and mm-hmm. Motown and the Stooges and all this stuff. And he was a hippie and, and a, a, a greaser and, and, but then so he was a lot older than everyone in the East Bay punk scene, but he recognized that this punk scene was as vital as any scene that he had been involved with. 
And so he realized that it needed to be documented. And that's what happens. You know, they're, they're, there's documenters of the scene and they're very, very important. And so Mint Records documented the Vancouver scene in the 90s. And Sub Pop documented the... And without those independent documentarians, there would be no grunge, there would be no hype, and there would be no... It took independent labels and people at the ground level to do it. The major labels would have never have found all those Seattle bands had it not been for Sub Pop documenting the scene. And that is what Larry Livermore decided to do in the late 80s. It all happened at the same time in different parts of North America. Uh, Larry Livermore in the East Bay of Oakland, Berkeley, decided to document what he was seeing unfold live. And so he formed Lookout Records, and he started putting out very DIY records by bands like the Mr. T Experience and the first all-gay rock band, Pansy Division, openly out all-gay rock band, and you know Operation Ivy, members of which became Rancid, which blew the doors off punk rock a few years later, and most famously, Green Day. And this was all Larry Livermore's ear, and wow, yeah. that's that's a hell of an ear. And and so those records just... He was a DIY operation in an apartment in Berkeley, and the records took off. Like hundreds of thousands of records were shipping, you know, out of this tiny apartment. It quickly moved to a, a bigger distributor that could manufacture the records, an independent one. And then uh, they moved into an office. And by the time Lookout was in an office, that's when the smugglers came along. And we had met Larry on a U.S. tour with Cub. I was tour managing. Dave was on drums. We decided to just go on the road with Cub for a couple of weeks. And Larry was at, uh, I booked the tour. And Larry was at one of the shows. And we met Larry. And again, been friends ever since, you know, <laughs> however, almost 30 years. And Larry and I have a great, <laughs> uh, I, we bicker a lot. We, we, <laughs> We bicker over trivia a lot, but he's a astounding, astounding guy. And it would just, you know, he had money all of a sudden, too. And he had never had money in his whole life. And he suddenly had more money than he kind of knew what to do with. And uh, But he was still, you know, he, he put out a lot of records. And he had his partners, Chris uh, Applegren, another good friend. Uh, Patrick Hines, another good friend. And... They were just, they were putting out a lot of records, you know, sometimes several a month. Some of them would sell huge numbers and some of them would sell a couple hundred. And we met up with a lookout band called the High Fives. And the High Fives were just like us. They wore suits. They kind of looked like early Beatles. They jumped around and we got along with them really, really well. And I told the Chris Imlay and the High Fives, hey, you know, we would love to be on lookout. And he goes, well, you know, you know, Larry and Larry likes you. And I said, I know, but I, you know, again, that Canadian thing, like, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted someone else to boost. I needed a, 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 you know, somebody else to back us back our play. So Chris Imlay became our Larry Lawrence <laughs> and said, Hey, what about the smugglers? What about the smugglers? And it, it, it just happened. And we ended up forming a, a bond between mint and 
look out in which we would sort of trade records. And, you know, in retrospect, Mint kind of got the short end of the stick Mm. because Canada is such a smaller market than Lookout that had the rest of the world. So they got, you know, smugglers were on Mint for a long time and we put out our most successful records on Mint and Lookout. But Selling the Sizzle, you know, sold many, many thousands of copies in the States and a fraction of that in Canada because it's just a smaller, much smaller market. I mean, that's just the way it went. Uh, so Cub, did, I think it was Cub and the Smugglers went from Mint to Lookout. They were the Canadians in the international exchange. And then going the other way to Mint was the Groovy Ghoulies, the Pansy Division, and the Mr. T experience. And so it was a, it was a good experiment, and I really, really worked it to push it through. Uh, and But really the only... The only band that remained in that Mint Lookout relationship for the long haul was the Smugglers. So we ended up putting out, I don't know, five records between albums, EPs, live records between Mint and Lookout. We always had that foothold in Canada and that Lookout representation in the States. And, you know, again, the Lookout logo, just like the Sub Pop logo, was incredibly powerful to have lookout on our record sold our record huh. you know pe- people would take a chance on our record just because it had that stamp of approval yeah. that that trademark of quality of the lookout label and so that helped us in a huge 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 way i mean we would we're we're still an obscure band but we would have remained you know playing to nobody for i would i th- except for pockets here and there you know we were popular in san francisco and weirdly kind of in the deep south but uh it was a lookout that kind of broke us open to pretty much the whole usa well it's time to go and say goodbye we've had a real great time it's time to roll to the next little town south of the border
this point you guys have been doing it for i don't know seven five six seven years um how are the relationships in the band at this point it 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 was strained and what's weird is that success can scare people Hmm. and I've, i've learned this over time of that if there's something really big and really great on the horizon my natural instinct is to say yes and it's been kind of my one of my life mantras is just say yes and then opportunities will will present themselves and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out but at least you tried it and a lot of times saying yes leads you into this crazy you know alice in wonderland type scenario that you never would have expected uh, down the rabbit hole and so that was my attitude was just say yes say yes and they offer us this tour say yes offer us this yes Mm -hmm. yes yes and the other guys, it was just moving just too fast for some of the guys. Mm. And even though it was what we had always dreamed of and what we had always worked towards in all those early tours of slogging it out in empty clubs and in Canada and, and weird places in the States, when we were finally given the opportunity and we finally got on the fast track to really take it full time and you know maybe even lose the day jobs, Uh, it it, a couple of the guys just kind of cracked essentially and couldn't keep up with the pace of the band and probably my ambition for the band and so our drummer bryce who's an excellent rock and roll drummer really really great him and i never really got along personally but his drumming was just fantastic and explosive and really great and and was a big part of our band and a big part of why people liked us like look at that drummer (laughs) you know he he had a big mop top and his hair would just explode when he was on stage and he was great but he couldn't handle the the the, the touring regime anymore and and he did a couple of lookout tours but those tours we would always tour in the summer because we thought well you know we can swim in the lake but Lookout was more strategic. And they said, no, 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 no. You got to tour when college is in, you know, <laughs> when, the student, when the students are there. So they would put us on tour in the winter. And, you know, some of those were pretty brutal in the snow. And, and uh, But the shows were packed. Shows were all sold out. Records were selling like crazy. We were finally getting, you know, above and beyond those Cub merchandise numbers. <laughs> and, I mean, really, like, we couldn't believe it. Like, we were selling. You know, there were some nights where we'd sell hundreds of CDs off the table, and we, we just couldn't believe it. It was like a like a crazy golden age, like 95, 96, 97. Uh, things were just on fire in the wake of grunge and the, the next and the, the return of punk, Rancid and Green Day and uh, the offspring, stuff like that. We were just feeding off of that, and, and the audiences were huge. and 
and it was just incredible. We played to a thousand people in Philadelphia or, wow. or uh, 500 people, you know, and, and it would be big package bills where we play with a bunch of bands from Lookout and in New York, Joey Ramone would be in the crowd or Lemmy <laughs> from wow. Motorhead. I mean, just like the stuff of our kind of wildest dreams. And I remember, you know, one show in New York, uh, we were part of the Lookout community and it was a CMJ music marathon. And we would always play that. The smugglers would always go to that. And the Lookout Showcase was at a place, a club called Coney Island High, St. Mark's Place, New York. And it was packed. I mean, front to back, five, 600 people jammed. Huge party. And the next show was a Virgin Records Showcase. Hmm. And so they would do an early show, which was the Lookout show. And they were doing a late show, which was the Virgin show. And... The Lookout show was jammed, independent label. That was the one with Joey Ramone and Lemmy and <laughs> uh, Tim Armstrong from Rancid was there. Wow. And then the, the next show featured our buddies from Pluto because it was huh. Virgin. But Virgin did not have the street cred. They didn't have the community. And Pluto played to... It went from 600 people jammed in the place. They they ended up playing to me, Nick, Dave, and Bees. Oh, wow. And and there were a couple other, Jeff Kulowick, who I mentioned. And I we felt so bad for these guys. But and then I'm thinking, like, well, God damn it, you should have just stayed on Mint. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't have signed to a major label. You know, like, the, there was where I saw the, the downfall of of playing on a major label and so yeah so we we just had a, a hell of a time and we really really benefited in that period uh from from all of those just that label uh association with lookout and and we really just had a, a, fa a absolutely incredible experience now we'll start to wind this down soon but um before we move on a little bit you mentioned ambition and yeah. Could you uh, expound a little bit more on your your credo or your of uh, the holy trifecta of ambition, good times, and denial? Yeah, I mean, I sh I guess I, I didn't quite finish that last answer, and that the the burnout the, the and this plays into ambition is well, we'll go through it. Like, so ambition is just like just believe that you can do it, and and just you know, it was just whether it was cold calling the gruesomes at the hotel room in Thunder Bay or Chris Novoselic in Seattle or, or believing that we could be on lookout records. I mean, we just went for what we believe could happen. And, you know, I don't even do it as much anymore. Uh, I did it as a wild teenager and 20 something guy and brought the smugglers along. And, you know, as I was saying in the earlier answers, some of the guys like Bryce, our drummer just couldn't handle the pace and he did a couple of lookout tours and then he, he bailed. And that was, I couldn't believe it. I like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> the, the, we are on a tee right now and we are about to be smacked down the rock and roll fairway and we could hit the green. Like this is, this is <laughs> it. Like we are, we're poised to, to really go for this bees, our beloved bass player. And again, still, you know, I'm, not friends with Bryce anymore, unfortunately, but with bees, I'm still, he's like one of my dearest best friends. Even he 
saw like holy smokes the smugglers are really taking off like offers a tour europe offers a tour japan all, all these australia like all because of lookout and constant we could do it full time and bees had like a midlife crisis <laughs> and he was like I, I you guys and the the really sad thing was is he's like i don't want to hold you back you know i can't tour as much as you want to tour as much as your ambition uh, wants to be fulfilled and I don't want to hold you back. So I'm going to leave the band. But that unfortunately was a huge setback because bees was a wild character still is extremely gregarious an excellent stage performer <clears throat> somewhere in there. He's a good musician and, <laughs> But a lot of his personality and his charm was a huge part of the diplomacy of our band. And, you know, he could make anyone in any language laugh. He was the guy who went in first and he was friends with the promoter. He was friends with the other bands. He was just this incredible ambassador. You know, one of our nicknames is the Canadian ambassadors of rock and roll. Well, Bees was that guy. And, he was the audience loved him. He was very recognizable. He had the big clunky buddy Holly glasses on and the shaggy black hair. And when we started touring without him in the lookout years, which should have been the best years when he wasn't there, man, oh man, just like the shows in the States, like where's bees, where's <laughs> bees. And poor John Collins from the new pornographers was filling in on base. And uh, <laughs> like he, he wasn't bees. He, He's an incredible guy, old friend, new pornographers, one of the greatest bands really to ever come out of Canada. But he was, he didn't have a pogo stick shoved up his ass like bees did. <laughs> and so that was really, really, really hard. Bryce came back for the 10th anniversary and then left the band again. Bees came back for the 10th anniversary in 1998 and never left the band again. And we became a much better band again because he came back into the fold. We're only as good as, as the sum of our parts. And Bees was a major, major sum of the parts. So that was the ambition. The ambition was too hot and fast for some of the members to take. On a, uh, on, and there were Dave Carswell uh, and Nick. They were right with me. The other members, some guys jump off the train, you know? And so that was really, really, really hard for me to wrap my head around. We did all the shitty work, and now you're getting <laughs> off when the going is good? It made no sense to me at all, but it was the amount of work that we were getting that they couldn't handle. The denial is what you have to get in your head to survive the low moments and to survive the shows where nobody shows up and because in the music business you are constantly humbled and i don't care who you are you're constantly humbled you know it, whether it be a royalty check or lack thereof or whether it be nobody showing up at a show that you thought was going to be great or whatever you know i mean it's it's, it's spinal tap right puppet show and spinal tap you know <laughs> That's where you have to put in the denial of like, well, you know, 
maybe they're a really popular puppet show, <laughs> you know, like uh, <laughs> maybe it's Kermit the Frog. But uh, that is where you have to essentially park the failures, like in hockey, where they say, throw away the bad game, get ready for, for the next. You know, you can't say, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad goalie. You have to say, no, I think even if you are, no, I think I'm a good goalie. I'm going to play the next game really well. That's denial, denial, denial. You have to deny your failures in a way. And that only works for so long, but it, it's important to do it uh, from, from, for as long as possible. And then, because hopefully you will find success and you won't have to do the denial for, for too much uh, any longer. And then, I mean, you know, bands often have a trajectory. Not all bands stay at the top. You know, uh, there's very few that do. Tragically, hip are one, uh, but there's not a lot that, that do. Most, it's a mountainous trajectory. You go up and then you come down. And Nardwar used to have a line in the early days when a band would be rude to him. And if they were on the way up, Nardwar would say, all right, well, see you on the way down. <laughs> and th- when they would actually need Nardwar. And right, so, right. you know, you got to be careful of uh, who you're slagging off on your way up because bands do slide back down a lot of them not all of them but most of them and so then the good times which is right in between ambition and denial is just remember to party say party i don't mean like doing hard drugs or anything like that i mean enjoying yourself and 
if you drink, drink, whatever. I know it's a slippery slope. And look, the, the smugglers, I think, you know, a couple of alcoholics uh, emerged out of the smugglers. And I think those guys deal with those problems. And I know one of the guys deals with those problems every day. And uh, because there's hardly any other jobs that I can think of when you show up at work and there's a bunch of booze uh, sitting there when you arrive to work. Yeah. Uh, as part of your demands once you get big enough and that's that's a real slippery slope but the good times is just like you know don't just go straight back to your hotel room you know check out the opening bands meet the opening bands uh, meet the headlining bands meet the audience because it's the people that really make up the community and you know we've been so lucky in the smugglers to meet some of the most complex and interesting people in music and whether it's nardwar or larry livermore or scott mccoy from the young fresh fellows or lisa marr from cub or nico case these are just unbelievable creative artists and personalities that you can bond with learn from and you can create your community and i often say that the three most important words in life are love family and community and so community is number three and you are nothing without your community. You know, think back to that Pluto gig, Virgin Records, huge money, blah, 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 blah. They couldn't fill a 600-person club, hmm. even with all their money in the world at that time. But the community of Lookout Records packed that club because it was like a club and everyone felt like a big family. And so it's important, you know, said the whale when they read my book, Dirty Windshields, Tyler Bancroft said like, I don't think we're partying enough. I, I, I don't think we're having a good enough time because it's really, really important to enjoy the moment because it's going to end. And we're really, really satisfied that the smugglers enjoyed the moment, whether it was playing on the, the floor of much music and, and we would meet everybody like master T check it out. You know, Sookie and Lee, oh, there's George. And we would meet them and befriend them. And they're all still friends to this day, a lot of them. And that's the thing, friends. Like if I don't have many royalty checks to, to collapse onto, <laughs> but I do have a lot of friends in the music community around the world. And they remain my friends. We don't see each other that often. But every once in a while, we connect. When the smugglers reunited, I got to connect with a lot of them. And those that that friend network they all came from the good times and that was a reputation of the smugglers is that we brought the party and i'm not talking about lines of cocaine or hits of whatever i'm talking about good actual genuine good times dance parties and and just fun you know laughs you know smiles and and really really great community bonding and so that's what we always tried to do. And we, we avoided violence. We avoided a lot of the pitfalls of the industry. Some of us got caught up in too much alcohol. But uh, we, we really had a great time. And uh, we had our downward tra trajectory, too. I mean, I remember one of the toughest nights of our careers, and it was actually one of the last nights of our careers, was in San Diego, California. And uh, 
we were a garage rock band, pop punk band, whatever. We rode genres like waves, and that was part of our success. And one of the bands that uh, we were playing with was opening for us in North America in the early 2000s was a band called The Hives. Oh, and nice. I remember the, the, yeah, the first time we ever played with The Hives was in Switzerland. And we were, by coincidence, wearing the exact same outfits, white <laughs> ties, black shirts, black pants. And but we, we instead of being aggressive about it, like, hey, who's ripping off who? Or, hey, how dare you? We instantly hit it off with this, these bunch of sweets, just great guys and lots of fun foosball tournaments and <laughs> lots of shows together. And I mean, they were opening for us in North America, which was absurd. <laughs> for a very very short time because hate to say i told you so became a huge hit single huge international hit like what every band dreams of what the smugglers dreamt of that we didn't quite achieve we came close never quite got that uh that hit which i really believe does sustain a like the hives will forever have a career because they had that one hit you know sloan will forever have their career because of their hits that's what you have to have to sustain it forever for long term the odds you know somebody who's cool that will sustain the odds forever yeah and that's what you need that one breakthrough song where people it takes people back to a time and a place smugglers came close but never had that true breakthrough single and so that night in san diego that i referred to we were listening we were driving home from the gig san diego back to la staying with our buddy ronnie from the muffs Something you should never do. You should never drive after the gig. You should always just stay in the city you're in for multiple reasons. Safety, fatigue. And this one, we were listening to Rodney, <laughs> Rodney on the Rock, uh, which in itself was sad because it was like 3 a.m. And that was his current time slot. Like Monday morning at 3 in the morning, one of the most legendary DJs of all time. And, and K-Rock wasn't giving him any more respect. Luckily, he's landed on serious xm now but uh he played the hives hmm. and afterwards he announced that they had been signed to a massive i mean it was probably one of the last really big international major label money deals before the real kind of collapse in the music industry so this was in around 2000 when Garage Rock made a comeback with the Hives and, and the White Stripes and the Strokes. And the deal was for tens of millions of dollars. Oh, wow. yeah. I mean, I can't remember. It was $20 million, $30 million, you know, $50 million, something, something absolutely crazy. And we were in the van touring a record that nobody heard called Mutiny and Stereo. And we're driving up the, the I-5 to L.A., three in the morning we hear this and we're on our, our trajectory was on the way down and it was a blow i mean because they had just signed a deal let's say it was uh, 50 million it's probably it was probably 30 million some outrageous number it's it's in dirty windshields and i can't remember it right now but uh we had been just paid like 100 bucks or something to play a wow. uh, horrible sunday night show going against my cardinal rule don't do sunday gigs <laughs> uh and it was terrible and that was a massive blow to the ego and i think it was like the one time where we couldn't 
overcome denial. There was no denying that the Hives, a band that was essentially built the same way as the Smugglers, lead singer, two guitars, bass and drums. Very, very similar uh, blueprint. They had taken off and we missed that comet. We had, we had written a lot of things and we were kind of like the Forrest Gump of rock and roll for many, many years. We were right on that periphery of so many cool scenes and so many amazing happenings. And we were very satisfied in our place. But that news hit us really hard. We were totally overjoyed for the band because they were our good friends. We were like, holy, there was, a, there was an element of it could have been us. And I think that was a tipping point for, for possibly a tipping point of fatigue for our guitarist, Dave Carswell. And that mm. San Diego gig in the spring of 2004, 2005, that was it. That was our last touring show. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was going to be our last show ever. But then uh, a kid... Uh, in the East Bay of California in 2017 did what I did to the gruesomes years earlier. He cold called me and he <laughs> said, hey, would the smugglers consider playing Gilman Street, a famous club that a lot of the lookout bands started at and we played many times. Would you consider playing Gilman's 30th anniversary? And we hadn't played, the smugglers had not played a show or, or even gotten together in 13 years. Wow. And we were thick as thieves for the previous 17 years. And, but we walked away after that San Diego gig. And, uh, and so I just emailed all the guys and one by one, each guy said yes. And we were waiting on Dave Carswell, uh, kind of like the, he, he kind of calls the shots as to whether we play or not. And he said, yes. And boom, we were back in business just in time for dirty <laughs> windshields. And that, that, that gig actually provided dirty windshields wasn't quite finished and that the ending of dirty windshields was that san diego story that depressing horrible sad san diego story and then we got that gig offer and we ended up going down to berkeley with all our lookout friends and we ended up playing gilman you know 13 years later in the in january of 2017 and it was a occasion and we were able to close that book on california that ended so badly in 2005 or 2004 and it gave me a happy ending to dirty windshields which was uh something i i never ever would have predicted now you kind of alluded to a collapse in the late 90s and um from your perspective you also mentioned it really booming in the mid 90s with you know, offspring and punk and grunge and all these things, and it kind of collapsing in the late nineties. Yeah, uh, you're a real smart guy. Um, from your vantage point, what did you kind of witness as all those kinds of things leading to a collapse? Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, who's the real smart guy is Larry Livermore because in the early nineties, you know, when CDs were flying off the shelves, he said, you know, there could be a time in the very near future where music doesn't even exist in a physical format. And oh, wow. we should be preparing for that. And he is <laughs> the only person that, and most people fight it, right? Like the music industry fought it, everybody fought it. And, but then the music industry said, hey, wait a second. 
we can just sell them Sergeant Pepper in the cloud. <laughs> they, <laughs> we can just sell them the digital version of Sergeant Pepper. Um, so he predicted it, amazingly enough. And he said that vinyl, you know, will probably become niche. I mean, it's, vinyl has been niche ever since the majors declared it was dead. Uh, but anyway, w what I saw in the late 1990s happen was a, you know, you, you, you have a boom bust echo. That's a business principle. And in the early 90s, you had a boom, yeah, like literally like nothing since probably comparable i mean i don't think there's anything truly comparable to the early 60s uh, or really the entire decade of the 60s but as i'll say again the 90s were our 60s so there are so many parallels you know yeah so there was this huge boom everybody there's money 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 and there's trickle down effect uh nirvana broke open the doors no longer did bands have to play three or four night stands playing three uh, sets a night of covers, they could play their original alternative music. Alternative music became the mainstream. That was a massive breakthrough. Green Day kicked the doors open further, and those were the two key bands. I mean, there was other breakthrough alternative bands, of course, like R.E.M. or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But from, from my perspective, the impact was greatest through Nirvana and and Green Day. And so the boom was followed by the inevitable bust. And so in the late 90s, what happened was a ton of those bands that got signed just didn't sell. And so there was a huge, a, a lot of the major labels overcommitted themselves on a ton of sh shitty bands. And some of them weren't that shitty. Pluto is an awesome band but they didn't sell on the major, not enough to sustain the amount of money that the major, and I hate keeping on bringing up Pluto as this negative example, because <laughs> I love those guys and I love their records and I, I think they're great, but you know, they're, they're one of my friends that made the leap. So many signed, dropped, signed, dropped, signed, dropped. And so the major labels overcommitted themselves in the mid 90s after the gold rush started to trickle out and in the late 90s there was a bust and we started seeing labels going down the tube we started seeing distributors going down the tube uh, declaring bankruptcy and when a distributor declares bankruptcy like cargo did in the i guess it was in the late 90s uh you know 98 was a very very bad year when a distributor goes bust well they hold all of the records that the label is selling and the distributor pays the label and i tell you tyler mint records hung on by their fingernails in the late 1990s i was working there they laid me off they said we can't mm -hmm. afford to pay employees anymore and it turned out for me to be a good thing because I suddenly needed a, a job and I ended up getting a researcher's position at the CBC. And I now I've been at the CBC for 22 years. Uh, but then Mint hung on and the, 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 the savior of Mint Records in the late 90s was Nico Case. And Nico Case came along and said, I want to put out a solo record. I'll shine like the sun, I'm on fire. Now your tears have 
what happened was the solo record came out it's called the virginian got a ton of buzz she brought a lot of her friends onto the record to sing one of those friends was carl newman from a band mm-hmm. called zimpano and they sang together and carl thought geez our, our voices sound pretty good together he formed a new band in 2000 called the new pornographers and knew he had to have nico case in that band and that band has made made history and that band was on mint and so Nico really saved Mint, and a lot of label, other labels went down the tubes. You know, I mean, Murder Records, you know, Sloan's label. You know, I don't think it survived the late 90s. I think they might be back in some capacity, but there was a real dying off, uh, which was very, very sad to see. And then there was the Echo, which was around 2000, the industry found those garage band revival you know as i mentioned white stripes hives uh and there was you know rock was back was the the thing and then after that came the huge resurgence of indie rock in canada but that we're talking you know 2003 2004 2005 out of montreal you know the arcade fire and that's part of that echo as well. And then it became a new boom. So, you know, the, the history repeats itself over and over, decade by decade by decade in the music business. But uh, but in the 90s, it was over committing on way too many bands trying to find the next one. Now, um, before we get to the, the picks for the playlist that I'm going to ask you at the end of the podcast, I would uh, be remiss not to take advantage of one of Canada's greatest storytellers, which I think you are. I heard on another podcast a story from Lonely End of the Rink, which is the next book I'm buying, about putting the P in P-E-I. Uh, <laughs> if you could tell me that story before I ask you the final question, that would end this on a really high note because that made me literally laugh out loud when I heard it. Okay, well, I'll try to retell it if I can remember it. So, I'll, <laughs> and I'll, Before I say this, I, I'll, not a lot of people realize this, but I sell signed copies of my books 
directly through my website, which is grantlawrence.ca. And if you order it through there, you can get a signed copy of, of any of the books. And, you know, I hear from people all the time, they just go like straight to Amazon or whatever. But if they go through me, it's signed. And I think it might even be maybe a little cheaper, but I'm not sure. So there's that plug. Uh, so <laughs> the P and PEI. So we were, it was that Canada tour, 1993 with Cub, our In the Hall of Fame tour. That was our record at the time. Done well in Canada. And we wanted to play everywhere. And so we had just come off a, a great gig in St. John, New Brunswick. And we were on our way to our first. Oh, actually, then we played Halifax with the Hanson Brothers and Thrush Hermit. And that was awesome. And the Hanson Brothers were doing a two-night stand at the Double Deuce. And we could have done back-to-back -back nights at the Double Deuce, but we thought, no, we'll do one night in Halifax, and then we want to play Prince Edward Island, <laughs> home of Anne of Green Gables. Come on, we got to see that place. And it was awesome. You know, we caught the ferry. This is before the Confederation Bridge went in and we caught the ferry and it was foggy crossing the Northumberland. I think it's the Northumberland Strait. And um, apologies if that's incorrect, but I think that's right. And we got onto Prince Edward Island and it was it was amazing. You know, red dirt and rolling hills of green and and quaint. And, you know, it was it was really awesome. But uh, we got to the gig, which was at the PEI Barn. Uh, a venue that no longer exists and it was with a bunch of bands and it was strawberry was one of the bands which in the 90s was like th the indie band from prince Edward island now you've got always one of the really great bands and two hours traffic lots of my favorites but back then it was strawberry and then they brought in there was cub and the smugglers and then they brought in this bizarre band from somewhere else in new brunswick it might have been from moncton or fredericton or something and they were called hemlock like <laughs> you know the poisoned limb of a tree and they were totally a uh, kind of a surreal dungeons and dragons kind of druid band a sort of a dark side of the moon pink floyd jethro tall weird <laughs> mystical experience where they dressed in druid cloaks and they they entered the stage carrying candles on sticks you know lanterns <laughs> and uh they they kept the stage lights low with smoke machines and and i was like this band is terrible <laughs> and uh, you know because i was very opinionated back then probably be into the, be into them now and i thought they were they were just god awful and i they had this roadie who was this big, big dude. And he, I remember he was wearing a Moncton Hawks uh, jacket. And I think the Moncton Hawks were eventually, uh, they were like the Charleston Chiefs of Canada. They were an extremely violent hockey club. <laughs> and I think they were like eventually dissolved because they were so violent. So this guy was wearing that jacket. I'm like, oh boy. And I was kind of keeping my eye on him because I had a sort of a history with, with, negative history with with dudes in hockey jackets and sure enough i saw this guy kind of try to hit on uh, a woman in the crowd and you know like hey baby how's it going like during the hemlock set and it was like deafening volume and he was smoking this is back where you could smoke wherever you wanted 
And she was kind of, you know, not having it. And, uh, and he didn't like that. He didn't like being turned down, especially in the middle of a dance floor uh, at a show. And so he took his, and I was watching this from behind. I was at the back of the, of the dance floor, you know, trying to figure out what the hell hemlock was all about. And <laughs> I watched this guy, this roadie for the band. I watched him take his cigarette out of his mouth. And as the girl walked away, he flicked a lit cigarette at her back. And she didn't react to it, as far as I can remember. But I did. And I thought that was a, a stupid move and totally rude, dangerous, uh, totally uh, uncalled for. And so I tapped this guy on the shoulder, going like, you know, and over the loud, you know, Lord of the Rings ruckus from the stage, <laughs> uh, the guy turned around and I'm like, what the hell was that? Why don't you flick your cigarette? Before I could even finish my sentence he curled back a ham-sized fist <laughs> and just slammed it into my face oh, no. and i flew back slid sliding along the dance floor on my ass slamming into the back wall blood gushing out of my nose all over oh. my shirt everything and, but we were up next. The smugglers were on next. <laughs> so Hemlock, you know, they, they climax in a, a wild flute solo and a puff of purple smoke <laughs> and indoor lightning and, and uh, you know, kind of st steel drums and gongs and stuff like this. <laughs> we shall return one day until then. <laughs> you know you are all under a curse and you know all this like <laughs> craziness craziness and they disappear and it's time for us to go on and we're on there in our suits and rubber boots and but i have to stick two paper towels two two kind of scrunched up toilet paper up my nose uh so the blood i i wasn't able to stop the blood in time so I get up on stage and we do the show and I'm like this, but it's all part of the act. And it, it wasn't, but I made it part of it. And, you know, cause you never, that's the other thing. Never let them see a sweat in a negative way. You know, I often think like the audience never knows there's a problem unless you mention it, you know? So you never get on stage. I would never get on stage and say, uh, you know, oh, I've got a really bad cold right now, which is why I sound like Kermit the Frog. Don't mention that. Nobody would even know. This one was a little tougher to get around since it was blood all over me. <laughs> um, but I think I probably slagged him off from the stage or whatever. But the guys were saying, the guys in the band were saying, like, cool it, man. We don't want to have any problems with this guy. Like, he is a beast. He is, he is a monster. So I... I recognize that too and i was kind of nervous that he would pound me after the show too so we loaded out of there we got out of there pretty quickly and we were staying because it was summer and that's when we used to tour we were staying at the pei dormitory uh, the university of pei dorm which was empty completely empty like a scooby-doo mystery <laughs> except all the bands stayed there so cubs stayed there smugglers stayed there and Unfortunately, Hemlock stayed there. <laughs> and we all stayed on the same floor, the second floor of the dormitory. 
And I was freaked out, like, oh, the and the, sure <laughs> enough, the, the thug was there too. And they loaded in, and I'm like, is he out there? We were all in one room. Is he out there? Is he out there? And Nick came back and said, yeah. And he's actually waiting in the bathroom. I'm like, what? Uh, and and I had to go to the bathroom really badly. I've been drinking, and you know, I need to brush my teeth and everything. And Nick was like, he's in the bathroom, man. Like, you know, like I'm like, what is this? Is this gonna be like a scene from Oz? Like, what is gonna happen? I don't wanna, I don't wanna go in there. You know, he could beat me and you know, or worse. And so I, I said, screw it. You know what? I'm not leaving this room. I'm not leaving the dorm. I am not gonna get punched again or or anything else, violated. And so I said, I'm, I'm just, and they're like, what are you going to do? Because I was kind of hopping around on my feet needing to pee. I said, I'm just going to pee <laughs> out the window. And they try to convince me not to 10 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes pass. Finally, I'm like, guys, I have to pee so badly. I'm going to pee right in here if you don't let me pee. <laughs> and so the, the window of the dormitory opened like a, a mailbox. It only opened inward about, you know, a few inches. So I stuck my wee willy wonka out the window <laughs> and just you know it was the lights were on in the dormitory room it was dark outside and i just started peeing like oh I, it was like i was like austin powers at the beginning of the second one where they <laughs> uh, where they unfreeze him and the first thing they do is take him to the urinal and he just keeps peeing and peeing <laughs> and peeing and peeing because he's been frozen in carbonite for like whatever 50 years and the one thing he has to do is pee it was it was reality for me i just could not stop <laughs> peeing and and then as i'm peeing i hear all this yelling from down below <laughs> because we're on the second story and i i look down and you know as well as i do that once you stop peeing you just you know like you physically cannot stop it's <laughs> it's an impossibility to stop and i look down and in my horror I realized that, you know, and there's a bit of a street light there that I am peeing directly on the windshield of Hemlock's <laughs> van. And they had all gone down to the van to hotbox it, you know, to, to smoke up in the van. And, you know, they were playing, I don't know what, like Primus or something like that. And, uh, and they 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 all like when when the when the pee hit the windshield, they all poured out of the van, including <laughs> the roadie. And they're all like, "Hey, we see you. We we curse you. And the, you know you blah blah blah." And, and then they were like, "Hey, it's that guy. It's the singer from the Smugglers." And I'm like, "Oh no 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 no!" And I'm saying to the guys, "Turn off the lights. Turn off the lights," because I was illuminated, framed in this in this window, and I couldn't stop peeing. And they're like, "Stop it! Stop it!" And I, I started trying to redirect the stream, sort of wave it from side to side, but that sent them scattering, thinking I was trying to pee <laughs> on them. And they're like, you're dead, you're dead. And uh, about two minutes later, it didn't take long, boom, 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 up the stairs, <laughs> boom, 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 pounding on our dormitory door. And we were putting chairs up against the door <laughs> and the dead bolts on, boom, 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 boom. Uh, pounding on the side of our wall, boom, boom, boom! You get out here right now, boom, 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 boom! They're gonna 
beat me silly, forced me to drink lamb's blood. Who knows? <laughs> and and then so we're in there, and now the whole band is awake. And we're like, what are we going to do this? And they're all furious with me. Like, why did you have to go pee out the window? You peed all over their van. And I like, I had no idea it was down there. And, and so they, you know, the, the hemlock thinks, well, I'm just trying to, you know, do, add insult to injury basically. Or yeah. And uh, so then I, I said to the guys, we, we got to get out of here. And you know what? I just realized something. I said it was before the Confederation Bridge. I think the Confederation Bridge had just opened like that year or something like that. 93. So I I think that was the year. And so I, I said to the guys, there's that new bridge. And I think what we have to do is we have to leave now. And they're like, are you crazy? They're gonna beat us silly. I'm like, we gotta get off this island. So what we ended up doing is we ended up setting the alarm for like five in the morning. It was already like two in the morning. We set it for like five or six in the morning, got up at the crack of dawn and tippy toed out of the dormitory and snuck downstairs and got in our van, which luckily they did not do anything to. We were parked around the back and they luckily, I mean, they could have, you know, shot in our gas pipe or tailpipe or something but <laughs> yeah. they didn't do anything like that we didn't find any sort of goat carcasses across our windshield <laughs> or anything and we got in the van we were all bleary-eyed but lucky with us we had two double beds in our van and we just put it in drive and got the hell off of prince edward island and we never saw those hemlock guys ever again thank goodness to me, that rivals the Subway sandwich story that your pal Nardwar likes so much. To me, that oh tops it. Oh, my God. I can't, believe you, I can't believe you know that story. Final question, then. I have a playlist on Apple and Spotify of all 90s can rock. So um, I know you don't have your whole discography on Spotify. So if you, maybe you can pick from the, the 90s material from the live album and the Dirty Windshield soundtrack. Two singles and one deep cut. So how would you like the smugglers to be represented on the playlist? Okay, so the two singles would be our two most successful singles. So that would be uh, the Ridiculously Annoying Vancouver, B.C. (laughs) And then uh, Especially You was the song that did the best for us. It was the song that would get recognition applause. Like, you know, when like Neil Diamond starts like Sweet Caroline, (laughs) people cheer like because they recognize the first couple of chords. <laughs> I remember it was completely surreal after, especially you went into rotation on much music. We started getting recognition applause for especially you at shows. And I, I would look around at the other guys going like, Oh my God, <laughs> that is recognition applause. <laughs> and it's really cool when, when you do it. I mean, you hear it from bands all the time now, like the people whoop and cheer when they recognize the opening notes, but for the smugglers to get that, that was awesome. So, especially you for sure. And then the deep cut that I was going to choose was uh, Death of a Romantic, which is a really, really great song from uh, Selling the Sizzle. But you were saying that Selling the Sizzle isn't on Spotify? It is not on Spotify, no. Okay, then we'll go to In the Hall of Fame, and this is also on Dirty Windshields' soundtrack. 
and we'll oh i here's a deep cut for you flying buttress of love oh <laughs> nice it's a really really awesome song that dave carswell wrote and for a lot of smugglers fans you know after the most popular quote-unquote singles of ours uh that flying buttress of love is like the 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 fan favorite song it's kind of an anti-love song it's about a lonely person watching beautiful people dating and it it is is it's always struck a chord with people people always want to hear it and it's kind of like the sleeper smugglers hit excellent choices sir well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today man it's been fantastic oh well hey i i really appreciate it I think you're doing a great job. Love the podcast. Love the stories because that's a, a lot of what it's all about too is just, you know, great stories, great memories of this special time in Canadian music history. And I, I think you're doing a great job bringing that to light. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're doing a, a great thing for all of us. So on behalf of, of all of us, like, you know, Kern's down in there and uh, where is he, Vegas? Like, what the hell? He's like, oh, I live in Vegas uh, <laughs> 10, 12 years. Like, what What the hell? You know, but that that's what musicians have to do to make it work. There's, there's lots of side hustles, and we're in the most complicated period of, of live music since, you know, literally 100 years ago, like pre the age of jazz. Like, that's how long ago it was. Uh, the, in the, during the last pandemic when venues were shut down. So, you know, you, you got to hand it to a lot of these musicians for finding ways to make it work. And you doing this is, I think, inspirational for a lot of us because we remember the way it was and hopefully the way it could be again sometime. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash ravedrool. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.